Bitcoiners, welcome back to Bedwatch. It's me and Ansel. I hear you guys on Twitter poking at us whenever we miss a week, so uh, we're trying to be better about getting a show in every week, but we're busy. We're producing a lot of content. Ansel's producing weekly newsletter all the time. He has a great community. Bitcoin Magazine is obviously doing what Bitcoin Magazine does, but we are here with an amazing lineup of topics to cover. Ansel dropped an awesome article on Bitcoin Magazine kind of dissecting the causes behind like this mid-cycle uh, correction. People are kind of confused. They they forget that bull markets also have some corrections uh, and they think that it's up all the time until the blow off top. So uh, Ansel dives into a bunch of the kind of like key narratives and things that have been going on the last few months. Uh, let's just get right into it, Ansel. This is a great article. You break down a lot of things. After we're done talking about the article, we're also going to dive into like central banks and what the heck they've been doing. A lot of stuff has been, uh, they've been very active the last few months, especially. So uh, a lot to get into in this episode. Um, Ansel, what's up, my man? Not much. Yeah, this article was fun to write. Um, I kind of broke it off of a larger macro post that I have on Bitcoin and markets um, and really dove in deeply into just the Bitcoin side of macro that happened in uh, Q2. But uh, yeah, I, I pulled out three narratives that when I started plotting like the dates on the chart, I was like, oh my gosh, they all like overlapped and came together right at the big decline. And so I said, there has to be something to this. And so I kind of wrote about it in this this piece. Yeah. So, I mean, let's jump into these narratives. I guess I can just list them off. You got GBDC unlock, mining ban in China, and then obviously taproot. So uh, let's start with GBTC. Okay, so GBTC, uh, people probably are familiar with um, their unlocking process. So um, accredited investors can buy new shares from GBTC, and that forces Grayscale to go out and buy Bitcoin on the open market um, or over the counter or whatever. They had to go out and buy Bitcoin. Um, and during times when the GBTC shares have a premium, uh, that creates a arbitrage opportunity for for these large accredited investors to buy new shares wait the six months until the shares can be sold on the secondary market and then sell them for that uh that premium um and that unlock period people track so people track exactly how many shares are going to be unlocked on this date on this date on this date and um it just happened to be like in May and June, some large unlocks started happening. So I'm going to share my screen real quick if I can. So here's my chart. Um, GBTC premium turns into a discount here in middle of February. And then in the beginning of April, they start having these large unlock periods. And then they continue doing these large unlock periods in a discount. So there is no pressure to go out and buy Bitcoin on the market by grayscale. Um, and it kind of, it ended up right here on July 17th was the very last one. There's a lot of talk around this, the ending of this process, or at least the very large way that it was going to end. It was going to be the largest unlock ever for GBTC shares. And a lot of people were saying this was going to be a huge dip. But uh, as you can see, that kind of decreased the uncertainty in the market, I think, around this particular uh behavior. And so then the price was able to come up after that. Um, we have these other three overlapping periods, which is the uh, China uh, mining ban. Um, 
hash rate peaked here roughly May 9th, I believe, or May 8th, uh, right before the big decline. Um, and then it bottomed out here on June 22nd or something like that. So I just highlighted that area. And then the third in orange here is the taproot. Um, taproot speedy trial began right uh, like May 1st, I believe. And it ended up, it already got, uh, you know, locked in there uh, June 12th, I think it was. So, but all three of these narratives, they combined right at the time when the largest price drop happened. And I thought that was pretty significant. So I, I remember that the Chinese mining band and Taproot kind of were at the same time. And I remember this was like right after the week immediately after the Bitcoin conference. But um, I tweeted that this was the most historic week in Bitcoin history between Taproot being activated and, uh, and this massive exodus of mining and hash rate from China. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. So, um, I mean... I should have put it's amazing to see it on the chart. And to everyone listening just on podcast, go to YouTube and, and check it out. Go to the article, see, uh, check out uh, Ansel's chart. It really is incredible, the boxes and how you put it all into per perspective with the price and seeing how the price reacts uh, against all of those different uh, events. Yeah, and once everything led up here, I think the, um, well, what I said was all of these individual different narratives they affected different parts of the market so gbtc affected accredited investors and high net worth individuals uh institutions and things like that the chinese mining ban obviously affected uh miners but also that was a big uh all in the headlines so that affected retail investors as well and then the speedy trial and a taproot kind of affected the hardcore bitcoiners so i think all of these things affected different parts of the market um and yeah, it's just amazing that all this uncertainty was caused during that time. And as soon as all these things were over, now the price, it felt that it could rise again. So um, yeah, now that we have a new narrative with this infrastructure bill, but uh, right now I think it's still in its early stages. And um, so once these things have wrapped up, now I think the price can rise. All right. Yeah. And let's... Uh... I mean, again, amazing to just kind of see all of these things layered against themselves. Um, do we want to continue kind of talking about, uh, you know, any of these? Do we want to dive into the mining ban a little bit more or uh, how do you want to take this? Well, I just recommend that people go and read the article. Um, we don't have to hash through each individual point made. I want to jump into this Fed news, uh, the new standing repo facility and stuff like that. Let's do it. Okay, so people are familiar with um, probably the, the reverse repo situation um, from the Fed. They have over a trillion dollars now or uh, back and forth over a trillion, under a trillion of uh, reverse repos going on every night. And that is where people uh, or big banks and large institutions, large financial entities, they can take their cash and uh, lend it to the Fed overnight. Uh, and the Fed will give them collateral, which is, uh, it can be T-bills, it can be any sort of uh, treasury. Um, and it has an interesting way of turning like a 30-year treasury into an overnight um, Fed liability. So it, it can turn all of these longer duration 
um, treasuries into overnight liabilities, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, the, the demand just keeps getting larger and larger. There's a lot of pundits out there like Zoltan and others that say that this could get up to uh, $2 trillion a night before it starts easing. Um, and we'll have to see. Um, there, there is not really a clear insight on what this means. We do know that it, it is a sign that the system itself is fragile. And we see a lot of other signs of, you know, like um, uh, T-bill rates and other things being so low that we know that the system is fragile right now. And some other statistics are starting to turn over and come back down again, roll over and show like a, at least a pause in the reflation recovery, if not a complete reversal of that. So um, there, there is a lot of fragility in the market. This reverse repo points that out uh, and it just keeps getting larger. So we'll have to see where it goes. So your take is that we're seeing more and more fragility and that probably means that we're about to see a spout of volatility um, and uh, we may see a little bit of a reckoning and uh, demand for uh, future Fed action or even greater Fed action. Is that what you kind of make of the situation? Yeah, risk is increasing. And so that is why rates are decreasing because uh, as risk goes up, people want to go to the most uh, you know, trusted asset out there. And that is the U.S. Treasury, the most pristine collateral. Uh, and so we see falling rates in that regard, even though the Fed is trying to keep these T-bills over um, five basis points because they came out, when was that? Um, I think it was in April and they announced that they were going to do this reverse repo um, with at five basis points instead of zero. Um, but these treasury bills are still trading consistently below five basis points. So that means that there's a massive amount of demand in the market that the Fed isn't even capable of servicing. Uh, it's not even acting as a floor, this five basis points that they're um, giving on the reverse repo. So um, one an, another very interesting development was this last, last week um, at the meeting, the Fed meeting, Powell came out and uh, talked about a, um, well, it wasn't Powell, it was uh, just a press release that came out saying that they're going to start a standing repo facility. Now, this is not Re reverse repo. So this would be the traditional where the uh, financial entities or uh, you, you know large institutions come with collateral and then get cash from the Fed. So the opposite of what's going on in the reverse repo. Uh, and they say they want to do this standing facility. It's it's kind of confusing because there is no demand right now. So there's a trillion dollars in reverse repo happening, zero dollars in regular repo happening, but now they want to do a standing repo facility. Um, so it's, it's a, a lot of people are trying to come up with a lot of different theories. I have my own of why, why they're trying to do this, but um, yeah, that goes into effect uh, October 1st. And perhaps they are looking at around that time for more of that volatility and risk to be realized at that time. Okay. Um, I mean, we already know this, like the Fed has dug itself, all central banks and all governments have dug themselves into a position that they can't dig themselves out of, right? There's no way to get out of this hole and they're only digging further. Um, so, you know, seeing them again, doing things to try to help 
uh, is not surprising. You know, again, I'd be interested to hear your theories on, you know, why they're doing these things and, and how the time works out. But in addition to that, you know, the Fed and other folks in the government are casting blame on Delta, right? Like coronavirus is, is damaging and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but, you know, both you and I are, are known to be relatively skeptical um, of the mainstream narrative, at least when it comes to this stuff. Again, like I know people that have gotten Corona and it seems like it was nasty. Um, but at the same time, I think that this is a much more complex thing happening. Uh, again, it seems that Corona is the scapegoat for um, for central bankers and, and politicians here. Do you want to kind of jump into uh, some of these statements? Okay. Um, yeah. So Kashkari, he came out and is blaming Delta for there's going to be some labor market weakness. Um, but of course, you know, this, the, the virus itself is not what's causing the labor market weakness. I think we can agree on that. And I think everybody would agree on it that it's not the virus. It's the, the response to the virus. It's the, the government response and, um, the lockdowns and, um, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, that, that's all I wanted to talk about with uh, the Fed. Can, uh, well, another thing they did do in their their minutes, they took out the COVID, uh, a line about COVID. Let's see if I can find that real quick. Um, so the statement the Fed issued after its latest policy meeting said that ongoing vaccinations were helping the economy, but it dropped a sentence it had included after its previous meeting uh, that said those vaccinations have reduced the spread of COVID-19. So I think that's kind of interesting. They took out that the the one statement that's saying that the vaccine is actually helping uh, the case numbers, uh, but they uh, did leave in that the vaccines are helping the economy. So kind of a mixed bag on that that regard. Should we get into China? We can, yeah, we just let's do in? it. Let's just do it. Okay, so there... <laughs> You'll have to tell me what you think about this. I haven't dug super deep into this, but we've we've heard a ton of news out of China, starting with banning of Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin trading. Uh, then they started banning IPOs that were going to happen in the United States. Um, now this DD, which I think is Uber over there in China, uh, they and some educational apps. They have been pretty much nationalized, I think, over there. Uh, and now just today or yesterday, Tencent came out and uh, there was some regulations on them saying that they um, they are going to be limiting video game playing somehow uh, in China because they, they equated it to spiritual opium. Um, there's a lot of like these draconian authoritarian measures coming out of China right now. Also, it does coincide with um, some slower growth, some stock market volatility, and they also are finally releasing some COVID numbers. So we all know that it, there was no chance pretty much that China uh, had 100 COVID cases a day, and it was right at 100 for over a year. Um, now it's they're starting to come out with more lockdowns in Wuhan and starting to admit to these um, uh, more COVID numbers. And so I think this might be a play for them to once again, blame this virus uh, for some of this economic weakness that's coming about in China and pro most likely due to their authoritarian crackdown. So what's your, <laughs> what's your take on all that? 
So, I mean, again, China is one of the areas where me and you really agree and kind of both have contrarian takes. I was just on POV Crypto last night and David Hoffman was just talking about how incredibly powerful the Chinese uh, uh, central bank digital currency is going to be, the digital yuan, and how amazing it's going to be and how its network effects are going to spread. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not going to even ship. And centralized, top-down decision-making authoritarians will fuck up. It is inevitable. They don't have all the information as the free market and they will fuck up. And I think that like we're just I'm looking at a list of three areas where they fucked up majorly recently. Fucked up by even if they wanted to control Bitcoin mining, they should have allowed Bitcoin mining to thrive in China so that way they can co-opt it, not kick it out, not unplug those machines, not displace all of that stuff. So if they really wanted to support the Jiju Wan, they would need to take out its greatest competitor, which is Bitcoin, the free money alternative. And they didn't. If anything, they made Bitcoin significantly stronger and they re- released a lot of their leverage, or that's how it seems. Now let's talk about banning all these different things and nationalizing all these apps. Again, they're leaning back into bad tendencies. They're leaning into uh, marginalizing their companies, marginalizing profits and marginalizing their citizens. And, you know, these citizens aren't going to forget what it was like before, you know, and maybe they're going to comply and bend down forever. But uh, I, I truly do think that, you know, the, the, they're making mistakes here, right? Like these policies, they're anti-free market, anti-choice, anti-fun liberty and life for their people. And uh, I think it's going to bite them in the ass in a long enough time frame. And then lastly, like you could blame... China for everything that's happened with coronavirus, whether it's creating coronavirus or whether it is not saying anything about coronavirus or trying to contain it at the beginning and downplaying it and letting people travel, or whether it's, you know, showing governments the playbook of locking down. Like, I, you know, it, no matter what narrative you believe, like there's multiple areas where I think you can blame China. So we're just looking at three areas where you and I, unfortunately, were vindicated in our bearishness on the CCP's ability to be competitive, not fuck up and, and, and continue to let its people be happy and fruitful and thriving. I think that they're really going in a negative direction now. Yeah, no conversation of China is complete without mentioning the demographic disaster that is about to happen there. Um, over the next 50 years, I think they're going to lose um, 100 million or 200 million, I can't remember the exact number now. I think it's by by uh, 2100, it's gonna be 700 million people supposedly in China. So they're gonna have a demographic collapse. And so now, right as this demographic collapse is happening, they're gonna you know, uh, crack down on IPOs, FinTech, um, educational apps, uh, Bitcoin mining. I mean, that's that's going to crash productivity that much more right at the time when you need to increase your per capita productivity. Right. And so I, I think it's it's uh, I don't know any way you slice it to me. Uh, this China looks like it's headed very quickly and it's devolving very, very quickly um, in the grand scheme of things into some sort of uh, collapse scenario or civil war or something like that. Just remember the Soviet Union in 89, 88 was being praised as still going to take over the world. They were still going to dominate the United States. They were still going to do all this stuff. And then just uh, within two years, they're gone. They were gone. Uh, th- and that was like the top 
academics at the time saying that the Soviet Union was still had the better system two years before they collapsed. And I think when I look at the news headlines and I see all this stuff about the Thucydides trap and about how China is going to dominate the future and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, they can't even control their claim territory with Taiwan, you know, and they barely got back Hong Kong and they lost a lot of their reputation doing that. Um, and they have a genocide going on and, and X, Y, Z, all of these things that it, it's not, it sounds exactly like, I think what the Soviet Union uh, must have felt like back in, in uh, 88, 89. Um, so yeah, that's all I got to say about China. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts. And you can get 8.5% US, on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in, they leverage it up and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under reserved and not full reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoin is like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to Ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about The Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. I mean, I think on a long enough time horizon, 
the fundamentals matter. First principles matter. And centralized top-down decision-making, especially in an authoritarian setting, like they fuck up. They do not have as much information as a market. And if that centralized top-down decision-making is inherently anti-market, is contrary to the market, is trying to dominate the market, like they will be crushed in a long enough time horizon. And I think, you know, the demographic disaster is trying to control the population, right? Like, hey, they had a one-child policy for a long time. So, you know, on a long enough time horizon, they're getting fucked. That's just one example. And I think we're about to see compounding examples of that with China. Uh, Again, you and I agree. We're both contrarians here. I think I've learned a lot from you in terms of how to think about these first principles anyway. So, um, yeah, I guess before we wrap it up, though, let's talk about the U.S. a little bit. Like, we're seeing the U.S. kind of return to, let's just call it, centralized top-down decision-making tendencies, authoritarian tendencies. But at the same time, like I personally am kind of bullish on the U.S.'s ability to resist because of uh, freedom of choice, states' rights, the ability to you know, take your assets and your, pro- and your property and move to a jurisdiction that is meaningfully different. Um, do you have any kind of comments around that and what you're seeing right now? Yeah. So I just try to remind myself about the fourth turning. You know, uh, this is a multi-generational cycle uh, that we're going through right now. Um, and it feels like the end of the world. The fourth turning always feels uh, very devastating and like things can not, you know, will never get better. But it's just a few short years later, things are uh, back to normal and growing again. Um, and so I think I, I just like to keep that in mind that this these things are temporary. Um, and also my whole thesis for, you know, the geopolitics and, and macroeconomic landscape of the world is that global it's globalization is going to decrease and the U.S. is still going to be the premier economy in the world. And so most capital is going to want to find its way into U.S. markets. Um, and so the U.S. is probably one of the better places to be in the world. Um, many other places have been racked throughout history with warfare. Um, the U.S., yes, we've had the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, you know, and some other minor, minor wars, but nothing to the extent, say, of Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, these places are constantly at war um, and they probably will continue to be. And so I wouldn't want to be in Eastern Europe. I wouldn't want to be in the Middle East um, or Central Asia, really, probably in the next 50 years, because I think um, as we deglobalize, these old animosities are going to come back to the forefront um, and probably cause major problems elsewhere. So the U.S., for me, I'm still on this North American renaissance. I'm still on this uh, uh, U.S. boom. And I think after the fourth turning uh, is complete, you know, it's going to be it's going to feel like a golden age here in the United States. So, I mean, tell me about, like, let's talk about, so the fourth turning is like this idea that there's four generations uh, and they kind of have their own archetype and they cycle, right? And like the the uh, original generation is kind of like the figurehead and the 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 dominator of that the, that cycle. 
And then by the end, everything that that generation has built and relies on is kind of completely decrepit and needs to be burnt down and replaced. And they need to pass off, you know, their value to uh, the newest, younger generation. And that's kind of like this four generation cycle. And we're at that point, right? So the, you know, here, you know, we are millennials or Gen Xers and the boomers have held on to power and everything that they've built has been for, for serving them. And now they need to pass it on and, you know, they need to pass on their governments and they need to pass on their wealth and their value and all that stuff. And there's just a massive friction in that, that passing point. Uh, and it seems as though, you know, these dinosaurs in Congress and in the Senate, they want to protect big banks, you know, with this infrastructure bill. They want to attack Bitcoin. They fear Bitcoin, if you will. And they're taking something that's bipartisan is a big you know, kind of non-issue for Bitcoin, and they're wrapping Bitcoin into it as part of like trying to achieve an agenda. Uh, do you have any comments about this infrastructure bill in the U.S.? And uh, I guess you know what's happening there. You know, Bitcoin Magazine has definitely you know been front and center with that conversation. Yeah, um, when I first saw it, I saw you talking about it on Telegram, and so then I jumped to your guys's coverage, and I learned some stuff from uh, some of the. You had a representative on there. I can't remember his name now, but uh, he did an interview uh, almost immediately. Warren Davidson. Yeah, yeah, and um, so most of the facts that we know, I think you guys have done a really good job covering it. Um, I guess the language has changed now, so it's it's less onerous than previously but we don't know um i don't even know if how much of a chance this thing has to pass both houses before it goes to the president um because i think pelosi wants to have a 3.5 trillion dollar infrastructure bill and this one's only roughly a trillion so um you know how how are they going to get these things um you know coordinated before they go to the president to sign i don't know what the chances are that it even does happen so um I, I don't know. So just to put things into perspective, what Nancy Pelosi wants, Apple is a $2.4 trillion market cap company. So this bill as is, is already a half an apple. So I don't think that this bill is going to produce half an apple's worth of values of the world, not even close, but Pelosi doesn't even want just that. Pelosi wants 1.5 apples, right? Pelosi wants to take Apple and smash it in with Google and spend that money, right? Like this is, I just want to put this into perspective. Like that is the amount of money that she's asking for. The only way to think about these things is to put it into context of other things of that size. And the biggest company in the world is $2.4 trillion. And Pelosi wants to just spend three point whatever trillion dollars i mean let's let's just put this into perspective well you can and on top of that it. they want to claim they want to claim 38 billion from crypto and potentially change that entire market in order to do so it seems like foul play to me right it's not it's a drop in the bucket in the in the numbers that they're talking about and they want to completely potentially crush an industry a burgeoning industry in this country so while i am bullish on the west like you see this kind of crap and you're like Come on, boomers. Like, just get out of the way, please. Like, you're about to die anyways. Like, come on, get out of the way. Well, we can add to that. Um, we do know about how much pro, uh, how much um, growth we get per dollar of spending, 
right? And so if uh, it's it's roughly three to one, so you have to spend three dollars. The federal government has to spend three dollars to get one dollar in growth. And so if if we're saying this is going to be a three trillion dollar uh, stimulus package, that means we're going to get one trillion in growth out of it, um, and that just is is that worth it, right? Um, probably not. Uh, to the Bitcoin side of the Bitcoin discussion. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that this was anonymously added. This Bitcoin language was anonymously added to uh, an amendment, and it's happening at certain this certain time in, in history that uh, you know China is falling. I don't know. My my huge conspiracy theory tinfoil hat is that um, China influence had something to do with this language. I mean, I don't know. We have. A very strong I, Warren Davidson is saying that this is coming from the Treasury, and the Treasury is part of the executive, and the Treasury is led by Janet Yellen, who's been firmly anti-Bitcoin, pro central bank digital currency, pro uh, let's just call it top-down, uh, you know, influencing the market, uh, and I would say that is following very much a very similar Chinese playbook. So. Uh, that, you know what she is doing looks like a lot of the mistakes that we just pointed out what what the CCP has done in the past few you know I guess generations but definitely in the last year um, in regards to you know coronavirus uh, you know different crackdowns etc so yeah I mean maybe maybe you are being a conspiracy theorist and I'm just saying directionally she's acting the same but you know, we're seeing this kind of bad policy and copycatting authoritarians from the West frequently. Like this is the same action. And I'm not surprised. They're threatened by Bitcoin. Bitcoin, this tiny asset that is less than a trillion dollars. And they're about to just print a trillion dollars. So they could obviously crush Bitcoin, right? They're going to try to put in this little like, you know, petty crap in there. And then on the flip side, I'm actually pleasantly surprised to see how the Bitcoin industry has kind of reacted because, you know, this is this two lines is probably the most scrutinized two lines in the entire bill by by far. Right. So um, that just shows these politicians like, don't fuck with us. Like we're going to be talking to Erica Rhodes from Southern California, who is a Democrat running against Brad Sherman in favor of Bitcoin and financial literacy. Right. And Bitcoiners from left and right, you know, especially right wing Bitcoiners are coming in to support her because. We're a single issue voting block, right? And I think, you know, like you said, is yes, there's some challenges in the US, but the US also allows cryptocurrency voters and cryptocurrency holders to influence the election in ways. And I can't wait for Brad Sherman to lose that that spot because that's gonna send ripples down the entire electorate. If you are firmly anti-Bitcoin, you will lose your job. Like that's the stance where you can't fuck, you can't fuck with it. Like, so I, I I hope that that does come true. And I hope that uh, this voting block in the U.S. Uh, continues to behave this way. And this voting block across the world, you know, if they can't vote it, then they can vote with their dollar and vote with their feet and take advantage of jurisdictional arbitrage. Yeah, it's beautiful. It goes to show um, that Bitcoiners are above average intelligence and we are above average means now that the Bitcoin price, you know, has gone up. A lot of us have uh, made money just by hodling for for years, and so uh, I think that this is 
Um, it's just, what do I say? But, uh, Bitcoin aligns incentives and Bitcoin aligns these things that just happen to, uh, you know, go together like uh, backing Bitcoin friendly politicians and getting Brad Sherman out. We need to get Senator Warren out next if we can do that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, oh, speaking of Yellen and another Treasury uh, or sorry, uh, Federal Reserve chairman, there is talk now that Powell could be losing his job very soon. So I think he comes up in September, October for his for his reappointment by Biden. And um, some people are talking that Lael Brainerd will be getting the, the nod instead of Powell getting his second term, four-year term. Um, that would be interesting because Brainerd would give us a lot to talk about on this show. She is much more friendly to CBDCs and to digital dollars. And so we, we might see uh, if Brainerd does take over for Powell here by the end of the year, we could see a significant pivot in the CBDC landscape from the Fed. Yeah, well, that would be a mistake if they try to crush the stable coins because that's their real CBDC, in my opinion, in my opinion. But um, if they don't try to crush the stable coins, uh, they will continue to see dominance. And I told David Hoffman this on POV Crypto last night, the same. I was like, I firmly believe that Tether will be more significant than the PBOC's digital currency forever. Like the PBOC's digital currency will never reach where Tether is at that period of time at all. Um, and I think Bitcoin will be more dominant than all <laughs> above. So uh, well, there's already a digital yuan, right? Uh, Tether offers a um, CNY Tether. And it only has like $5 million worth of CNY Tether. Uh, so it's not like these uh, options don't already exist to use a digital version of these currencies. It's just that nobody wants to use them. That's why they're... Uh, the USD tether is by far the most dominant. Yep. No, I agree. Well, Ansel, I think we got a little ranty here at the end, but this is what a lot of our listeners are uh, tuning in for anyways. This is a great rip. Um, how do we want, do we want to close it out? Yeah. Do you have any uh, last words for the, for the Bitcoiners out there? Nope. Um, I, I just want to thank Bitcoin magazine for, um, you know, let me publish some of my stuff there uh, and stay tuned because I'll be coming out with uh, at least a couple articles a month. And so that uh, should be some good macro uh, geopolitical takes uh, over there on Bitcoin Magazine. Yeah, well, hey, Antel is dropping an article every other week. We're going to be talking about his articles on here every other week. We're going to be getting on some great guests and great panels on FedWatch as well. So stay tuned. I promise you guys we'll be hitting once a week, consistently moving forward to the best of our abilities. Uh, just be a little patient with us in the short term. Uh, but until then, follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Ansel at Ansel Linder. Follow Bitcoin Magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. Five-star reviews. You know the drill. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.